You are listening to the Big Blue Rock Pod, produced by the Kentucky Geological Survey at the University of Kentucky. This podcast is a fun, conversational approach to discussing all things geology and earth processes. We primarily focus on Kentucky. We talk emerging ideas and research, along with classic topics in earth science for all levels of interest. Let's do the show! Hello and welcome to the Big Blue Rock Pod. I'm Matt Crawford, along with my co-hosts Doug Curl and Sarah Arpin. We're at it again. Hey, Matt. How are you doing? Good. You all good? Excited about this topic. I think think this is going to be a popular one. This is a good one. So let's go ahead and introduce the topic. Today's topic is geology and bourbon. So we want to try to connect bourbon with rock type, lithology, hydrology, and bourbon production and all the cool things about bourbon. And, you know, I was thinking, and we talked about, we've talked about all, we've kind of laid out a lot of topics for this podcast, but this one I had to sort of really, I think, remind myself and rationalize why, why we're doing geology and bourbon, because it's not, it's not new. Like a lot of people have talked about, about this before. KGS has some field trip guidebooks that talk about geology and bourbon and geology and culture. Alan Fryer over in Earth Environmental Sciences is is very knowledgeable about about this and has written some papers and he's actually done some podcasts on this. It's it's out there, but then I was like, yeah, yeah, it's it's out there because it's awesome because it's it's a lot of people like to make these connections with geology and things that are popular, and the same thing th- same thing can be said for beer and wine and other other spirits. So despite not being new geologists, especially in central Kentucky and people in the department and people at KGS love to talk about this. It's, it's just what we like to do. It makes us proud, I think, to be geologists when you have something that is, uh, you know, in your career, that's also very much related to something that's culturally super popular, I think. And so we want to, we want to talk about that. Do you think that's a good rationalization for this, for this episode, this topic? Yeah, I think so. I mean, for Kentucky, and we think of horses, bourbon, yeah, basketball. It's hard to connect geology and basketball. No, we could so find something. We have to do it with horses and bourbon. <laughs> and we won't connect this season's basketball right. performance uh, geology, but no, no, <laughs> but some some other season. Yeah. Okay, so before we dive into the nitty gritty of geology and bourbon, we have two guests. We have we had two guests before. No. Nope. First time. First time with two guests. So let's meet our guests. One is uh, John Hickman, who's a research geologist with the Kentucky Geological Survey and also an adjunct faculty with Earth and Environmental Sciences Department. And Mike McGlue, a professor in Earth and Environmental Sciences Department here at UK. So I'll let each of you talk about what you do. John? Hey, uh, I'm John Hickman. I'm a geologist here at the survey. I've been here for about 20 years done a, a variety of projects, uh, anywhere from looking at oil and gas assessments for the Commonwealth to looking at uh, uh, critical minerals and, and uh, rare earth elements to uh, potential places to put uh, CO2 underground to uh, help fight climate change, uh, a variety of different topics. But I uh, also have a, a love for bourbon and uh, often get asked questions about Kentucky and bourbon from Friends and relatives that are from outside the state, uh, except for basketball, they they pretty much understand that. But <laughs> but uh, uh, the horse racing and and the bourbon, they often ask me about. And so over the years, I've picked up a few things here and there. You've become the resident bourbon guy here so uh, for good. my family. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Mike. 
Yeah, hi, I'm Mike McGlue. I'm uh, on the faculty over the department, as you mentioned, Matt, and I'm a sedimentary geologist by training, but I, I do most of my work in the environmental geology realm, particularly looking at lakes and trying to understand, you know, how climate change and people affect aquatic ecosystems. Um, it's kind of a good way to summarize it. I also teach a class called On the Rocks, the Geology of Beer, Wine, and Spirit Alcohol. So I, I'm super interested in this topic and, of course, a fan of bourbon like uh, I suppose we all are. And so, yeah, happy to be here and happy to, to chat with you. All right. Well, let's kick this off with, I think, may be a silly question, but I think the basic question, what, what is bourbon? You guys both take it away. All right. Bourbon is, is a whiskey. The current rules for, for bourbon to be called a, a bourbon require it to be at least 51% corn and to be uh, produced in, in America and be aged at least two years in new charred white oak barrels. So unlike some other industries that, that reuse barrels, the bourbon industry is required to use uh, unused new charred oak barrels for their production. And basically they make a, a beer out of uh, grains malted barley, uh, rye, wheat, and corn. And out of that beer, basically make a beer and then ferment that to increase the alcohol content into a whiskey. Then they age it in charred barrels. And when it comes out, it's it's a bourbon and uh, everyone likes it. 51% corn is the floor. Yes. Right. You don't, there's not a strict rule on, on that number, except that's got, that's the minimum. It has to be at least 51%. Yeah. Uh, the highest percentage I've heard of is, I think, 82, I heard in one distillery, although I can't place which one that was. It was pretty high. But that's, yeah, that's getting pretty cl close to just corn liquor. And and that's, is that why the original, some of the original terminology was corn whiskey? I mean, just because that's an ingredient? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Kentucky has a lot of corn. They're really good at growing it. And one of the reasons why the the state was settled early was there were, you know, lots of opportunities for farming corn and also for fruit. And it, it turns out it's a lot easier to store corn and preserve it as whiskey than it is in barrels because of our climate. So it's like if you try to store just the kernels, that stuff rots and it's like, you know, it's, it's difficult to bring it to market. But if you turn it into alcohol, it's much more easily transported and, and stores a lot longer. The different types of bourbon, I mean, like there's rise and... Uh, what, other, what other kinds? That's just, that's just the, the balance of ingredients. Like, so if something's a well, rye... That's a different kind of whiskey, though. It's uh, not bourbon? That's not bourbon, no. Oh. You can have a straight rye, which is similar to a straight bourbon, but in that case, you have at least 51% rye grains in it. And you can also have just rye whiskey, which is not a, a classification that, that the USDA has, so that as long as it has rye in it and it's a whiskey, you can call it a rye whiskey. Uh, bourbon has, it has the, the more stringent definition for, for uh, sales. And in the distilling part, that time or process dictates the proof. So I've, I've read about barrel proof. Does that mean it's like the, that's the highest number you're going to get? And the more it's distilling or longer in the barrel, then the, that proof number goes down. Is that right? The, the amount of alcohol that's in it is, is a function of how the distilling process goes and the number of times that they distill it. So each time you know, so basically they ferment a mash, right? Because the fermentation process is converting a sugar into carbon dioxide and ethyl alcohol, right? That's where the alcohol is coming from. That's the ethanol. 
that product they're taking and distilling to increase the alcohol content. So distillation is like one of these simple but very cool chemical processes where like you use different boiling points of, of two miscible liquids to separate them out. And so ethanol boils at a lower temperature than water so they can concentrate it through distilling and condense it and actually increase the alcohol content. That's the stuff that ultimately gets into the barrel and how long it stays in the barrel really depends on what distillery you're, you're looking at or talking about. And what kind of flavor profile they're trying to go for. Exactly. So 101 proof versus 80 proof, that's just determined beforehand? Actually, that's that's after. That's during bottling. So uh, the maximum uh, proof you can have going into a barrel to be uh, technically called a, a bourbon is 160 proof. 160 is the max. Um, oh, okay. But the maximum you can bottle it at at the other end is 120. So they always add water to water it down out of the barrel into the bottle. But... Some of them, they don't water as much, and so they, they come out at, at barrel strength. They come out at, at the strength they were in at, at the barrel. That also changes through aging because if angels share uh, water and some alcohol, mostly water, though, evaporates, uh, basically gets soaked into the wood grain and then out to the other outer surface and evaporates out. And so if you've ever walked through uh, an aging warehouse and smell that nice honey kind of bourbon smell, you know, a nice thick bourbon smell, that's actually the angel share evaporating out of the out of the barrels into the aging house. Cool. Yeah. And so to be a bourbon, is that a question of location? Like, does it have to be in Kentucky or is that that concentration of corn? There's an American law that says it has to be made in America, but I'm not sure that that would count other places. So no, there's not really a, a, a place requirement. I mean, there is technically, but since only American laws are only applied in America, it's hard to say. I don't think it has to be made in Kentucky. Of course, you never see that in Kentucky. If you see a bourbon made outside of Kentucky, say in Tennessee, then they usually have a write-up about that or something. You know that not all bourbons are from Kentucky. Well, yeah, Jack Daniels <laughs> is, is bourbon, it, right? No, no, it's it's a rye. It's a rye. Oh, yeah. okay, but it's they, a Tennessee whiskey. Yeah, yeah. They they call it Tennessee whiskey. Yeah, yeah, and it's aged. That's a different process. That that process instead of aging in in charred oak barrels where uh, liquid soaks in and it goes through the charcoal and then comes back out uh, in the aging process. Jack Daniels technique, and it basically speeds up the production. It's, a, it's a, a factory technique, basically. They trickle it through charred oak chunks. And so they have a long tube that basically drizzle the, the uh, whiskey through. And so instead of, then they age it in uncharred. They still age in oak, but the going through char actually happens right before it goes into the barrel instead of while it's in the barrel itself. It's a very minor difference, but... It's cheating. Nice. Yes, yeah. <laughs> if you live in Kentucky, it's called cheating. Yeah, Tennessee whiskey. Come on, who wants? You know. But I, I think I read ninety-five percent of all bourbons produced in the world are produced in Kentucky. Is that accurate? That sounds right. That sounds right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so that leads me to some other little factoids that will kind of lead us. Did you want to say something? Anything else about that? Was it a hit on the aging part? So the aging is part of the definition, or? I mean, it has to be aged. It has a, to be aged at least two years. At least two years. Okay. In Chardo. Yeah, I missed that. Now, after that two years, you can transfer it to something else. So uh, lots of different distilleries are now doing barreling in which they'll take, say, a port barrel or a sherry barrel. And, and oh, after yeah. the two years yeah. in charred oak to make it qualify as a bourbon, they then add it to a used barrel of something else 
to uh, add some extra flavor to it, different uh, nuances to it, and then you can create a new expression. John, you remember we took that GSA field trip to Woodford, mm-hmm. did the tour. That was like Woodford's first sort of remodeling, revamping. This was like 2002 yeah. two early. Mm-hmm. And so the barrels that were in those warehouses there, I think I thought they said they wanted to keep them there for seven years. So any Woodford you got back then wasn't coming from them. It wasn't coming from yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, so it's obviously been more than seven years now. So you're drinking whatever think, they were distilling back then. I think then, then they called it something like Woodford Select or something, you know, that had the name on it, but it was clear it wasn't from that distillery. And is it not called yeah. LeBron and Graham anymore? Is that? LeBron Graham is the. That's the distillery. That's distillery. the building name. Yeah. yeah. Or the. But anyway. Yeah. Location name. And part of the time that it spends in the barrel dictates the price because there's a lot more that can go wrong over five, 10, seven, you know, 20 years versus two, right? So like the, if you've got like a, a bourbon that's been aged, you know, more than 10 years, you know, a lot of distilleries are, you know, hit by catastrophes. There's fires, there's accidents where like those rick houses will, will get damaged somehow. And so they have the potential to lose a lot of value if they're, uh, if they're subject to one of those one of those mishaps, so the longer the time in the barrel usually means the higher the price. And that's that's the number on the bottle. If something says thirteen year, you know, Pappy Van Winkle ten year, something whatever it is, that's that's time in the barrel. Yeah, that's the youngest uh, that that liquor has been in the milk. So it, you could have you if you had say a barrel that was twelve years old and a barrel that was five years old, and you mixed it. You can only call that a five-year-old because that's the youngest that's been in there, even though it's it's a mix of, of ages. And sometimes they have to do, well, the smaller distilleries often do mixing to, to even out the flavor profile because they'll have some areas in their rickhouse where age is faster and some areas where age is slower and so on. So you have to get a consistent profile. So like, you know, Budweiser always tastes like Budweiser. You know, to have your, say, Woodford, whoever the brand is, always tastes like Woodford, you need to do a little bit of mixing to make sure that that flavor profile stays consistent. And that has to do with like temperature and that expanding and contracting of the the wood in the barrel where it draws in the the mixture and then I guess yes. precipitate or yeah. releases that back into the barrel. So uh, the technical word is called adiabatic expansion, and it's basically the uh, the situation where if you heat something up, it gets bigger, and that happens with almost all uh, materials, really. Um, but uh, different materials expand more than others when they're heated. And so when you barrel the uh, the whiskey or you know the raw, raw uh, wine or whatever you want to call it, you put in it before it becomes bourbon whiskey and, and then plug it all up, it's, it's kind of a contained system. But in the summer, in rickhouses, it gets hotter. And so we have fairly decent temperature swings uh, through the seasons here in Kentucky. And so when it gets hotter, the, the whiskey, the liquid in the barrel gets bigger. I mean, it basically expands, but the barrel doesn't expand as much. And so because of that difference, the liquid actually gets impregnated into the wood. It actually gets pushed into the wood grain because it's it's looking for spaces to fill up. And when it does that, since there's alcohol and alcohol as a solvent, it tends to dissolve some of the sugars, some of the natural sugars that are within uh, the white oak. And, and that's part of the toasting charring process brings out those sugars. So it's a it, uh, dual effect. And I should probably mention that the charcoal part of, of the barrels, if you've ever, uh, a lot of us have little water pitchers with a, a charcoal filter in the center to take out impurities and get rid of like the lead taste and, and chlorine taste and stuff like that that's sometimes in tap water. 
that's exactly what the charcoal, the charred inside of the uh, oak barrels is doing, is during this adiabatic expansion, when the liquid is being pushed into the uh, barrel, and then when fall or winter comes and it, it cools down, it condenses and flows back out, each time it kind of breathes in and out of, of the oak, it's stripping a little bit more of those sugars and a little more of the tannins. And that's why when you distill bourbon and it comes right off the still, it's, it's clear. It looks like water. But when it comes out of the barrel or out of the bottle, it obviously has a caramel color. And that caramel is from the tannins and the sugars within the white oak that it's extracting uh, through that aging process. Yeah, and different, and different distilleries use different levels of char on the inside of the barrel. And that really affects the flavor profile. So if you're going for like a vanilla note in your, in your bourbon, it might be like a level one or a level two char. Whereas if you want like a real oaky flavor, it might be like a deep level four char. So there's this whole gradient of the amount of time that they'll roast the inside of the barrel before they put the bourbon into it. So it's a pretty cool process. Is it by hand blowtorch or there's maybe some automated process now? But... No, it's, it's automated process at the cooperage, but there's, yeah, there's many, many, many variables that you, you basically put in a bid order and you can specify length of char, type of char, you know, all that sort of thing. Flame it's, it's, source. Yeah. It, well, I don't know about stuff. flame source. They're all kind of natural like, gas, but, but still it's, it's, yeah, it, whatever you want to dial in, if you're a distiller, you can order that kind of barrel. And is there a reason for the oak? Is that a flavor profile or how that takes in the liquid or what's the reason behind oak specifically? I think originally it's just because it grew it available here in Kentucky yeah. and there was mm -hmm. a lot of it. Mm -hmm. And so it became the standard. And if that's your standard, then that's what you make into a law. Awesome. So there's a legend about that too, that I don't know if it's, it's entirely accurate or not, but supposedly when people started making corn whiskey in Kentucky, typically what would happen would be they'd distill their whiskey and then it somehow would make its way up to Maysville and ultimately we'd go down the Kentucky River and make it into the Mississippi River and then go down to New Orleans. And supposedly before they started charring the inside of the barrels, they were just reusing barrels from other purposes like, you know, the barrel might store vinegar or fish. And like the, the whiskey, of course, like in its transit from Kentucky to Louisiana would absorb in the, by the same process that John is talking about, like over the course of like weeks or months to make that trip, it absorbs the flavors that are on the inside of the barrel. So as legend has it, charring the barrel actually, you know, prevented like these other nasty flavors from getting into the whiskey. And then they, you know, soon learned that after a few months in a charred oak barrel, they're kind of an interesting flavor profile developed. And so that's supposedly how some of that got started. It was an accident. Uh, yeah. Supposedly. Yeah. And the tax stamp on those barrels was from Paris, Kentucky, which is Bourbon yeah. County. Bourbon County, yeah. And so everyone began calling it, you know, that whiskey from bourbon or bourbon whiskey. At least yeah. that's, that's the story I've been told. <laughs> I, have, I have no, it seems a little bit too uh, tight of a nice bow on it to be realistic, but who knows? Maybe that is what happened. So a couple of... of Production factoids, I think, are worth mentioning. We mentioned the 95% of bourbon produced in the world comes from Kentucky, but I also read that Kentucky has about 35,000 spirit-supported jobs. I felt, I mean, that, that seemed quite significant. And there are 68 distilleries in the state. I don't know if that's an updated number. That's pretty recent, I think. Yeah, okay. that sounds correct. You know, as of 2014, market value for bourbon sold in the U.S. was $2.7 billion dollars. In 2018, uh, U.S. distillers derived $3.6 in revenue. So I guess this is all to say that bourbon's popular and doing quite well. Yeah, it's a big business that's gone through a big renaissance. There was a lull 
you know, like 70s to 90s, more or less, where there wasn't a lot of interest in bourbon. And that that industry has sprung up, like a lot of those numbers that you just quoted, there's been a big growth recently, like past 25 years has been like a big renaissance in the bourbon industry in Kentucky. Yeah, you see it, too, in the the aging houses that are popping up everywhere. I was on the parkway last weekend, and there's all these new aging houses I'd never seen before near Bardstown. It's been a while since I've been down that way, but, and then in uh, Woodford County where I live, they're building them like crazy. Yeah. It's kind of nuts. Yes. I know. I forgot to say this, uh, Mike, when you mentioned more bad stuff can happen, the longer it's in a warehouse and in a barrel, I think wild Turkey had uh, a warehouse collapse a couple of years ago. Do you remember that? It, yep. This thing just like split in half Yeah, and they, different piles of wood and barrels everywhere. And it's, it was sort of on a head of a slope and that, that had me curious as, you know, possible slope stability issue. But the news was very quiet about it. Uh, Oddly, I I felt like, and they they didn't want to say what happened. I don't know. I think those things, I mean, it it, it stands to reason that it would happen, right? If you're talking about decades and, you know, there's definitely been release, big releases of bourbon into the Kentucky river. There's (laughs) that stuff has happened. Yeah. Yeah. Glenn's Creek. Yep. Yeah. yeah. We, we, we had mentioned Elijah Craig. Elijah Craig is considered the is inventor of, the, of bourbon, the right word, or the first person to sort of distill it in Kentucky? A is forefather. A forefather yeah. of, of bourbon <laughs> distilling from Georgetown, Scott County. Do you guys want to say anything about Elijah Craig or what do you know about Elijah Craig? I know of him, but I don't know that that many facts about his life. I Mike? know there's a lot of legend around him. I know <laughs> yeah. he, He's oftentimes kind of like you know, bourbon is kind of attributed to him in, in, in some ways, but I think like from what I've read, it's, there was a lot of bourbon distilling happening in the late 1700s in Kentucky. There's a lot of distilling in general, right? It's like, if you've got a lot of corn and a lot of fruit, it's like easy to make a lot of alcohol. And so like pretty much like all, you know, when you look at the historical records from like the, the old bourbon County, which is like most of Eastern and, and Northern Kentucky, like the wills of most people who died, there was always a still on the on the list of like their property and assets. So I think it was just a pretty widespread process. But he he's oftentimes I think attributed to to like the bourbon, the growth and expansion of bourbon. The Baptist minister. Yeah. There was a statue of him at um, Royal Spring in Georgetown. I don't know if that statue is still there, but I guess Royal Spring was probably a good source of the water for the bourbon making in in Georgetown. Definitely. Yeah, are we going to talk about water? We that's a perfect segue. I didn't Excellent. really mean to do that, but let's talk about water and let's talk about this the geology part of all this. I don't know where we want to start with the geology part of all this, but I guess just groundwater in central Kentucky and rock type in the inner bluegrass and how both of those things really influence quality of bourbon. You uh, take it where you will, either you guys well, I can start, and you know, there's a lot of limestone in Kentucky, and that's an important thing. And particularly in the inner bluegrass, there's a lot of Ordovician aged limestone, which is like, you know, give or take 450 million years old. And the the fact that we have limestone bedrock is important because it really influences 
like the water chemistry of the region, particularly the groundwater, right? So there's some important like geological processes that help to influence the chemistry of the groundwater and dissolution of limestones are really important one. So right, basically when you chemically weather limestone, there's a lot of ions that get released into solution. And those are those are important ultimately for some aspects of the the of the whiskey making process, right? So our water here has lots of calcium and magnesium and bicarbonate. And that's important. And the springs that you mentioned around Georgetown, those were, you know, well aerated and kind of neutral pH and like lots of lots of water quality quality characteristics that distillers today like select for specifically. Right. There's also like um, there's there's an aspect to it that that relates to the iron content. Right. So like in part the water is like the, the oxygen levels in the water are high. It's spring water. Right. So there's not a lot of dissolved iron in that water, which potentially um, helps facilitate the distilling process as well. Well, it it, it reduces off taste because because you don't have that that rusty taste to the water. And since corn itself is not a overly flavorful grain, uh, any impurities in your water really come out as, as, uh, as off taste. And, uh, yeah, with, with, with a karsted system with, you know, caves and, and, uh, uh a well oxygenated water system like that, that, yeah, all the metals drop out. So it's not really a worry. It's just once it comes out to the other end, it's filtered. So you have the neutral pH, but you also have the water that limits the iron concentration. Yeah. And that's positive. That's and the good calcium and magnesium, which is good for yeast health. Yeah. And so that that okay, so the water chemistry seems like seems like it's one part, and then just the karst environment in general seems like it's the other part. I know there's overlap there, but just having groundwater conduits and a lot of springs, a lot of productive springs, makes it all the better as well. Yeah, we should probably say what karst is, right? Yeah. I don't know if we've talked well, about you've Sarah, talked about that previously, right? Sarah, Sarah, Sarah knows a lot about that. <laughs> well, if you listen to our last episode mm. on Mammoth Cave, yeah. then you might have an idea of what karst is. But the quick and dirty of it is karst is a landscape where the area is underlain by dissolvable bedrock. And so limestone, um, dolomite is another, any of your salts, gypsums things that dissolve easily in water. And because of that, you end up with less surface water and more groundwater flow. Water is diverted under the surface, and that that process forms a very distinct landscape where you have caves, of course. So I'm really glad we got our plug-in for caves this episode because we've got to do that do every it. episode. <laughs> so caves are essential for bourbon, folks. You heard it here. But yeah, so sinkholes, another super common karst feature. Springs. Uh, springs. And, and so, yeah. It's worth mentioning, I think, that inner bluegrass, outer bluegrass karst is different than, say, karst in the western part of the state, right? There's a maturity level difference there that I think probably, well, I don't know if it matters with the bourbon quality or production, but, right, the caves in the central bluegrass and the springs are... I think They're different. The, the lithology of the limestone is different. Yeah, it's it's a muddier limestone, right? And so you have these thick bedded limestones in like Mammoth Cave, Mammoth Cave region. Yeah. Um, whereas here, 
there's a lot of mud layers in between. Um, and so you have these thinner beds of limestone. It's just not as continuous. And so you do get caves, yeah. but they're they're much less extensive. They're, they're a lot shorter. Um, you still have the same groundwater processes, though, and you still have a lot of springs in the area, just much smaller caves. Yeah, yeah. it's still easy to dissolve. That's probably one of the keys, right? It's like you don't need you don't need particularly acidic rainwater to dissolve the limestone that's in and around Lexington in the central bluegrass region. And, you know, a little bit of carbon dioxide in your atmosphere plus rain is going to give you... It's going to do it. Whether it's a coarse grain crystalline fossiliferous limestone or a pure uh, fine grain limestone like the St. Louis or St. Janus, it's it both, they're both going to dissolve. Yep. So inner bluegrass... Uh, geology, outer bluegrass geology, you've got the formal term you hear most of the Lexington limestone. And the Lexington limestone uh, is a formal name for the mapped limestone in this part of the state. And it's got different members and they all, each of those members have very unique and different characteristics. But can you want to say something about the Lexington limestone being, you know, influencing bourbon or bourbon quality or is it can be dulled as lump it as is uh is karst being the the main thing i think karst is probably the most important thing um especially with the with modern factories you know the the flow fluid flow you can get through karst for instance how much faster water will flow through just an empty tube rather than a cone filled with uh coffee grounds for instance so it just takes longer to percolate through those little particles than it does through an open passage same sort of thing for for wells if you have a well in sandstone which has lots of little holes in between grains but it still has to pump it through that that's it's a slower pump rate whereas if you drill into a big cave that has you know two feet of standing water in the bottom then obviously you can produce a lot more water quicker so for the craft distilleries and probably the early going on it might not have mattered as much but for modern days if you want to use a, a factory and but still be able to call it a, a spring fed then uh, um, the springs around here are one of the few places I know of that can really pump that fast, frankly. So I guess my question is like, there's no, you, you can't point to the Lexington limestone that has these qualities that make this bourbon different as opposed to the Silurian age, uh, Louisville limestone and Waldron, whatever, some of those formations that are Silurian a little bit further west that, that point to this bourbon kind of quality and taste difference. You can't unpack that, unpack it like that. It may be possible, but I've never heard of anyone trying to do that. Yeah, I don't it'd know. It'd be really subtle if you did, but... I mean, the water's yeah. traveling, right, yeah. long distances yeah. over across multiple formations, yeah. so... I mean, most of the early distilleries were built, like, basically on top of rivers or springs, right? It was that the supply chain issue. They didn't want to be far from the water source, and oftentimes they were almost co-located with mills, right? You want to you grind your grain... Um, close to the water source, and then you want to distill your liquor from that grain in the same close proximity. So I don't know if, if, if there is a difference, it's, it's probably some treatment thing that they do out West relative to how they would, how they would deal with the water here in the inner bluegrass. But I don't know if there's a subtlety and flavor that develops as a result. Are most distilleries getting their water a locally and from groundwater or surface water or a combination? Uh, some of them use I mean, now, I guess, yeah. I mean, originally, obviously, they were... Yeah, originally probably, springs. Uh, some still spring. do springs. Uh, Woodford Reserve has a has a well on site. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, uh, Wild Turkey and a couple others use uh, river water. 
like Kentucky River water. And there's a few actually in, in Louisville now that, that use, uh, what is it, um, basically double distilled tap water. They take Louisville municipal water and, and run it through, I don't know, it's osmosis or what, but they, they filter it out, but they still, technically the source is a Louisville municipal water. Not there's, I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. Everything is USDA's reviewed and everything, but it's just. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know we mentioned Jack Daniels earlier and even down in Tennessee, like that's karst as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there are actually caves on that property. I think it would be interesting to see if there's any that aren't on a karst yeah. area. Well, even though they age differently, they have the same needs for water production and yeast and and uh, the buffered pH that the limestone brings. So that doesn't surprise me. But the water chemistry in the Tanglewood member of the Lexington limestone is going to be pretty different than uh, groundwater chemistry in another formation, right? But not enough not enough to to uh, <laughs> not enough to affect what you need to do to, to make bourbon, I guess, is what you're saying. As long as it's oxygenated and, yeah, yeah. and, and, you know, clear water, I would think it's probably good, but, um, yeah. um, I'm not a geochemist, so there may be slight differences in the magnesium and, and calcium with those different rocks that, that would affect something, but I, that's above my. For sure. There would be knowledge. differences in the ionic composition, but how much it would matter. Yeah. It's, yeah. That's a good yeah. question. The one thing that probably could vary is like total dissolved solids. Like the dissolved solid content almost certainly would vary depending on like, you know, what member of the, the groundwater is coming from. And that would potentially influence like the distilling process and how they would treat the water before they used it. So that that's probably one variable in addition to like the chemistry, like the ionic composition that could vary. I would think what's on the surface as well would affect the water chemistry just as much. Vegetation, source of water, whatever. Soil thickness. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, it would have to vary. I mean, probably one cool thing to mention that that's kind of definitely related to KGS and EES thought process anyway, is that the fact that we have karst here is because, you know, many hundreds of millions of years ago, there used to be a a shallow seaway here in Kentucky. And so there's kind of a nice connection between like the ancient geologic history of Kentucky and our ability to like make bourbon effectively today. Right. So there's kind of a cool like geological history lesson there that kind of plays into the whole bourbon industry cropping up here. Yeah, that's super interesting. And uh, that's I mean, that's also related to the the phosphate content in the limestone, like the fact that we were shallow ocean environment, uh, tidal environment, Bahamian, modern day Bahamian, you know, kind of platform carbonate environment that allowed some of these deeper ocean elements to to wash in i think to this shallow platform and that's why the lexington limestone has a lot of phosphate that gets in the soils and i think yeah. i'm right on that yeah <laughs> and sure. those phosphates are why we'll the, the horse it. industry is yeah here, and then that, that phosphate yeah, weather into the soil and that's for the horses too but no doubt about it the connection to uh geologic time and what things were like in the ordovician matters what what else uh, are we do we need to mention about production or distilling or composition of bourbon or how you know how how this geo- how the geology really affects tastes or any other characteristics of bourbon well touching on the soils like i mean it's probably you know one thing that we haven't talked about yet is that you know, the western parts of the state in particular are really conducive to growing corn because of the soils that are there. And like the reason why the whiskey feedstock is corn here is because like there was so much of it. 
right? It was, it was so easily grown in Kentucky. And I mean, today, like it's expanded West into Indiana and Illinois and so forth, but the soils in Western Kentucky are super fertile. And part of that has to do with like the geologic history and how our critical zone operates here in Kentucky. So that's like definitely, that definitely played a role in like the bourbon industry springing up here as well. Like the ready availability of corn that we can grow so well because of our fertile soils out West. You have all the elements coming together in Kentucky. You have, I mean, I guess it starts also with climate. I mean, the climate is conducive to growing a lot of corn. It's and fertile soil, fertile soils with limestone and the availability of groundwater that comes from a karst environment. Um, lots of white oak to timber. Lots of white oak to timber for the barrels to. Yeah, transport this stuff down the river, which is, I guess, the original reason. But um, but climate is important because you mentioned something earlier about you know the the cold hot allowing the the bourbon to seep in or the whiskey to seep into the into the barrel and then back out again. How important is that? I mean, if we were in a tropical environment where the temperature doesn't change that much, would that be as effective? I guess. Uh, I think it would, things would take longer to, or things, whiskey would take longer to age yeah, uh, yeah. because you didn't have that cycling. Yeah. Uh, or if you did, it would be much more reduced. At least that's how it's been described to me as far as the science of pulling out the sugars from the, from the wood. Yeah. You always hear more about climate, I guess, with winemaking, but I haven't heard it as much with bourbon. Granted, I'm not in this world that much, but it's kind of interesting. That Part of it is because wine is just uh, fermented. Right. And so yeah. unfortunately the distilling process will strip away a lot of the the stuff that's not alcohol basically. And so a lot of that flavor will drop away just cuz it's not distilled. And so my guess is with wine and beer carry is more important or the region that that you're making the product is more important because you know dust or or airborne particles or um just yeast that are naturally in the environment or whatever it is yeah. is is affecting it more where in, in distilling even if that is affecting it once it gets distilled past the beer stage, that's all disappeared. But again, that that's my assumption. I don't have any data to back that up. But the climate does does matter for the aging process for like lots of different spirits, right? So it's like the reason why Scotland, you know, it has such like a prolific whiskey industry in part is because the climate there is really conducive to like aging scotch in a barrel. Right. I mean, it's also conducive to peat, which is important for their malting process. But yeah, the climate plays a big role there in the same way that like when people started distilling rum, like doing like distilling in the tropics does change how like that the product interacts with the wood. And like, I'm sure that it'd be a really interesting experiment to compare like how the same product ages in a bunch of different in a bunch of these different environments to see like, you know, how fast like the rate is going to change right? Because of the seasonal contrast and moisture and temperature. So I think the climate does matter a whole lot. Yeah. 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 Are those warehouses have to have special conditions inside climate controlled something in the warehouses? In fact, I only know of one aging house that's climate controlled and they climate control it so they can fast cycle so they can huh. experimental. They can basically heat cycle faster than natural. Is that makers? makers? Uh, John's not allowed to say. I'm not allowed to say. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Whoa. I think, that, but you know what distilleries do do a lot of? They, they've they got all this like 
you know, kind of proprietary knowledge about how their rickhouses work and how they interact with climate because they know like down to the floor of a certain rickhouse, like what the temperature range is going to be annually. And that's going to vary depending on where you are in the property. Like the third floor in one part of the property in a rickhouse is going to be very different, like climatically than like the third floor in a different rickhouse, like a mile away on, you know, associated with the same distillery. So I think they do, they, they track that stuff pretty carefully, but they don't, I think they don't often release that information. And you'll notice that mostly rickhouses are built on ridges. So they do have basically that accelerates that process because it, you know, it's in the wind, you know, so when it gets really cold nights, it's going to get extra cold on the ridge. Whereas if you put it down in a hollow, it'd be a little protected a little bit. Oh, that's funny. Cause yeah, those ones in Millville, in Woodford County and at Castle and Key, those are well within that valley, and you kind of wonder how that's going to affect yeah. their bourbon versus Woodford right up the road, which their rickhouses are sitting up on a ridge. You would think it's to their decided advantage to have it at a higher elevation, right? Because it's going to age quicker. The quicker it ages, the quicker they can get it to market, yeah. right? So it's you're paying like, for that footprint. So yeah. if it takes five years versus ten years, then you've you know, cut that footprint price of whatever you're hosting it or whoever you're paying to keep it or whatever. And what is it called? Is it your master distiller? Like they have a guy that like his job is to know or all hers. those nuance or her. Sorry, I should have of all people. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they know all those nuances, right? Of what, how the temperature, humidity, things like that vary in what parts of what are they called? Brick houses. <laughs> Brick houses. So they, they're the ones that know how to move it. For, they know the for secrets. The yeah. yeah. Plus they're always sampling too. So they're regularly going up and getting small bits out of uh, different barrels and seeing how they're aging. So they know, because you can kind of course correct too. So if you have a barrel that's in a really, especially hot area and it's aging too fast and it's basically getting too oaky and it's you know, almost getting that lumber taste where you can take that down and move it to a different area where it's just going to slow the process and you know reverse it. So something that's been towards the center bottom of a rickhouse where it doesn't change as much, you can then rotate up into that that high heat area and, and adjust. And uh, some distilleries rotate their barrels to try to even out the process. Some like a, a wild turkey Put, them, put the barrels in and leave them there the entire time, but then choose which barrels they mix together to get the, the, the flavor profile. It's just different techniques on the, on the same end game. Yeah, I mean, it's a billion-dollar industry, so they, yeah. they look, like, very carefully in making sure that that, like, wild turkey tastes like wild turkey and Jim they Bean aren't tastes guessing. like Jim no, Bean. No, there's a lot of stuff going into this. Yeah. That's another thing we didn't talk about. When they deal with building a mash, right, so, like, you know, they, they the, the product that gets fermented, like, all those, all those grains that they kind of, you know, cook with water and then put into this fermenter, they usually will add old material, like, in that process. It's called setback. Um, to make sure like they have like flavor consistency amongst their batches and like a lot of different spirits industries do this they have like some sort of like proprietary technique like a lot of times it's like the strain of yeast they use is like that's a closely guarded secret because like that yeast always produces like a consistent type of you know fermented product that tastes like you know what they expect it to taste like so that stuff is like very carefully studied and guarded and they, there's a lot of experimentation in the industry too but it's very cool that they you know, can can dial it in and like, you know, every time you drink Jim Beam, it tastes just like Jim Beam. So what, what are they doing when they come out with a special release? Like, uh, you know, Woodford comes out with a hot Christmas bottle, something. What what are they 
tweaking to get a rare special sales generally yeah <laughs> sales that can be almost money that can we be call a remember the bottle <laughs> we all run out and buy it yeah. because it's got a red it's label on it yeah. Yeah. the the blue and white dipped makers bottle yep i mean they double oak and things like that i guess or which i don't totally understand that but or the age uh, i mean the age I mean, i'm sure they these guys can explain it. Change the age, change the barrel char, change the, the, the mash bill is a big one, like put a little bit more wheat in there or a little bit more rye. So they, you know, you need to have at least 51% corn, but like the other ingredients, I mean, and even the corn ratio varies. And so they can tweak that a little bit to get a different flavor. Yeah. And also I've heard of, of distilleries buying loads of grain from a different supplier. So was it uh, a Jephthah Creed in Shelby County? They have their own, well, not their own, but they, they use one kind of corn and it's a corn, it's a red corn. Most people aren't, most other uh, distilleries aren't using, but anyway, they, they only use that, that one corn. And so I'm sure they get to know what that flavor profile and how that reacts with the yeast and, and kind of tweak everything. So yeah, they're, they have you had on. a tour of that place? I'm very curious I have about not it. yet. I, yeah. It's on my list. I haven't yeah. been there yet. COVID I've kind of dampened some of my travel. Drive by it a lot. This has been a great discussion. It goes by so fast. I mean, who doesn't like to talk about bourbon? Is there anything we missed? Jim Beam Institute. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Worth, worth talking about. Yeah, because say, they, talk what about they're that, doing on campus is really amazing. The Jim Beam Corporation have, get, have given a lot of money to the University of Kentucky to essentially like build up research and education on distilled spirits. Like the idea is that they want students who are trained in like the science, the science and the business of distilling so they can stay and work in Kentucky in the, in the industry because it's blowing up. And so they're doing some really amazing things on campus. They're building like an experimental distillery. So there'll be like an actual column distill built on campus. There's a lot of research on like the cooperage aspects and like the white oak and the grains from the from the agriculture side. There's a bunch of folks from the department and the KGS who were involved in, in the, the Jim Beam Institute. Um, Dr. Zhu at the KGS is, is a groundwater specialist. He's worked with them. I've been working with them, Alan Fryer as well. So it's like a really cool initiative and they have a certificate program that students can take and actually anyone can take and, and just get smart about the distilling industry and like how it works. It's a really cool operation that um, is, is rapidly growing on campus. So it's worth checking out in the next couple of years. It's very cool. Last thing I had was everyone's favorite bourbon. Are we, are we prepared to, to let this out of the bag? You go first. <laughs> well, I got an education at the beginning of this. So I was going to say, will it rye? But then I learned oh. that ryes are not <laughs> bourbons. So um, now I'll go with Weller. What's yours, Doug? I mean, I've, I'm not a huge bourbon drinker, but I have a bottle that the, the Taylor from Frankfurt from Buffalo Trace. Buffalo Trace. Yeah. yeah, that's still in my cabinet, and that one's really good. So I guess I like that one the best right now. <laughs> <laughs> John? It's hard for me to say a favorite. I don't know. It depends. It's like having a favorite food. Well, it depends on what I'm hungry for that day or, you know, what the weather's like or, you know, if I had a rough day at work, whatever that is. You know, it, it, it's hard to, to answer that. Uh, I tend to like the more uh, rye-heavy bourbons, so Woodford Reserve. Uh, I think Colonel Taylor's a high rye. Um, Old Forester, 1910. It's not an everyday bourbon, maybe, but it's it's an excellent bourbon. I love that one. Yeah. Mike? Best everyday, all-purpose, value bourbon out there. <laughs> four Roses, small batch. See, I was going to say Never Four goes Roses, wrong. small batch, because that's, that's a good one. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a go-to. Good yeah. value, 
can do anything with it. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I sort of decided on mine, sort of the bang for your buck kind of bourbon. And mine's Russell's Reserve. I was just with some guys who really know their bourbons, and they shared with me a Russell's Reserve. Russell's Reserve is a wild turkey. That's a wild turkey. Yeah. yeah. And they shared with me a Russell's Reserve 13-year. It was really good. I mean, I and I don't, I don't know enough to, you know, really distinguish the taste and what's good and not necessarily, but this, I could tell, was really good. I mean, it was smooth. It was all the things you want, I think. It, and it didn't, you know, it wasn't gross, right? It was... <laughs> <laughs> it was good. I'm like all those other and, and I say that. I, I, no, I say that because that can happen. Like yeah, I, yeah, sure. this is a quick aside here. I I uh, went on a ski trip with some college friends a few years ago. I was like, I'm going to bring. I had seen these guys in a while. I was like, I'm going to bring them a nice bottle of bourbon we can all share. No names. I don't even know what it was. <laughs> I bought this stuff at in town, and it was expensive. It was disgusting. Like everyone knew it. Everyone hated it. It was like, I was like, I don't know what this is, but it was not good. So there are bad bourbons out there. I'll just say that. But <laughs> not Russell's Reserve. Yeah. Russell's Reserve 13 year. And this stuff, I think it's expensive, but it was quite delicious. I'll give a plug for just if you're from out of Kentucky, come in and visit because all these distilleries are now, not only they're building a lot of Rick houses, but they're also building great experiences i guess to come yeah. visit and and that sort of thing so yeah i've been going to bourbon tours for you know 20 some odd years and and difference between when i first got here at kentucky in in 1999 versus now is oh it's incredible you have, you have, you yeah full <laughs> experience you know the tasting experience with the tour and and uh you know huge uh, interactive displays and it's it's quite amazing so who's got the best tour john Ooh, that's tough. I, I really like Buffalo Traces because they have so many of them. Oh, they're so, so good. So you can keep going yeah. back and learn something new every time. Yeah. I'm a Heard sucker that to that. But yeah. Castle and Key. Uh, Castle and Key is good. quite good. Yeah. Uh, I do like their cat. Yeah. Yeah. So. They have nice grounds. Buffalo Trace is hard to beat just for, yeah, the variety and yeah. value, too. It's a good, it's free, I think, for at least one of their tours. Um, yeah, their main one's free. Yeah, so... Not all the distilleries are doing free tours, so that's kind of nice. Yeah, and the people that give tours there actually know what they're doing because I sometimes quiz them. Yeah, <laughs> I'm that annoying guy, but <clears throat> but yeah, they're really good. Well, thank you so much to our guests, John Higman, Mike McGlue, for coming in and talking bourbon and being on the Big Blue Rock Pod. I think this was a good one. It was uh, fun, yeah, yeah, fun yeah, episode. Fun. Uh, so look for this to drop soon wherever you get podcasts. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. This podcast was produced by the Kentucky Geological Survey at the University of Kentucky. Special thanks to Ben Corwin and Alicia Gregory at UK's Office of Research Communications for technical support. If you have any ideas for the show, email mcrawford at uky.edu. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.